Hi, welcome to The Heavy with Andrew and Don, where we cover a large range of rock and metal topics for the casual listener. I'm your host, Don Sutherland. With me, as always, is my brother, Andrew Sutherland. What's up, dirtbags? Right. <laughs> so I try focused. to tone it down a bit so my voice didn't crack this time. <laughs> You're focusing so hard. Yeah, it all came out <laughs> lower. Um, remember, you can uh, email us at theheavypod at gmail.com or send us DMs on Facebook, wherever. Uh, if you got any comments you want to give us, Andrew, what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about the big four of thrash metal and their respective debut albums. Oh, sweet. Let's do it. We make four tries open my bottle. I gotta get back to cans. Here. Okay, <laughs> it's already too much hassle to open up a beer bottle. I was trying to like I was holding it away from my body by the mic, so mm-hmm. it was really awkward, and I just couldn't get a good grip on it. Right. I got it though. I'm so proud. All right. To start off here, uh, I would say thrash metal is probably my personal favorite genre of the metal genres. Uh, really, like by the history of how much I listened to it and how it really uh, helped get me into metal in general. Makes sense. To give a quick definition of thrash metal, we've talked about it before in the past a bit, uh, but the combination of the aggression of hardcore punk and the technical ability of new wave of British heavy metal bands like Iron Maiden and Judas Priest. That's kind of uh, how you look at it. Yeah, that makes sense. I never thought of punk and thrash in the same kind of like bubble. That totally makes sense. Like <laughs> yeah, those two genres totally. You just think of what was coming out of the 70s and early 80s, and those are the two kinds of music that sort of came together to, to I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little vague. It's not It's not exact, but it's a, it's a good starting point to kind of describe how thrash formed. Yeah, like right off the top of my head, I know that like James Hetfield from Metallica is a huge or was a huge uh, skater in California. And that makes sense. Yeah. That's kind of like goes hand in hand with the punk scene. And a lot of those guys in those bands were, were big fans of punk that it kind of translated over into thrash. Yeah, because it would be kind of the rawest sort of just angry, loud genre at the time. Yeah. Then you're throwing in some like, you know, better riffs and, and solos and stuff like that. This wave of like thrash coming in, in the early 80s was uh, very influenced by Motorhead who they'd already been combining the musicianship of metal with punk aesthetics for a little while at that they point. They were around that long, huh? Yeah, they, I mean, they started they out were... in like the mid-70s, mid to late 70s. So, oh, okay. All right. I so, didn't know that. I thought I they were an 80s band. Well, they, I mean, they played all the way through the 80s, put out albums, but they their first album was like 76 or 77 or something. They've been around for a little while already. Interesting. So uh, we also, at an earlier episode, we talked about the early days of the scene when uh, Dave Mustaine got kicked out of Metallica. Oh, in that yeah. earlier episode, and that was also a key event in the birth of the big four of thrash metal. Yeah, uh, we'll get into a bit more detail about all four of these bands and then their debut albums. Yeah, uh, so the big four would be considered Metallica, Megadeth, Anthrax, and Slayer. So if you if you didn't know that, or for any listeners that weren't aware, there there it is. Yeah, <laughs> I was waiting for that. And and also uh, because we live in we live in Calgary, and the big four is also a a music venue or like a it's like an events venue. Very yeah. confusing for for me when I first moved here because someone said something about like, yeah, we're going to the big four. I'm like, Metallica's coming to Calgary? <laughs> it was it was kind of an awkward conversation because they didn't know what I was misleading. talking about. Yeah, and I didn't know what the big four was. Yeah, and they were, but, it was Calgary, so they were going for a country show. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It was, it was uh, I think it just kind of, the conversation faded away and I just ended up walking somewhere else. <laughs> just avoiding it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, 
in reference to like the the debut albums of all these bands, none of these albums are my uh, top albums of theirs or favorites for each band, respectively. Right. But they all have a special place in metal history, so they're all very important. I mean, it's all a matter of opinion, I guess, but you know, depending on how people think of them, they're still very important how thrash metal developed. Yeah, yeah. So uh, while the other three bands were coming up uh, in California, in the Bay Area, LA thrash scene, Anthrax was refining their craft in New York City, uh, okay. and they were trying to impress a guy named Johnny Z and his uh, Megaforce Records label. And they had already signed Metallica at that point. So okay, so were they based in New York? Do you know like the, yeah, like Anthrax came from New York. I mean the um the record label. Oh, Megaforce. Uh, yeah, Megaforce was on the East Coast. I'm, I'm not sure if it was like New York okay. City, but it was over in it was somewhere around New York. Okay, so that's um, just like a sign of how how much Metallica skyrocketed. They were getting signed by a label on the other side. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Metallica was already getting real big. So as I mentioned before, like I'll, I'll kind of go through the bands one at a time and just do a yep. little rundown of how they. Uh, got to making their first album, kind of leading up to it. So, okay. as I mentioned before, Anthrax, they were around in New York uh, when Metallica kicked out Dave Mustaine. We talked about that on the right. earlier podcast. Yeah. yeah and been over that. they ended up replacing him with Kirk Hammett, basically stealing him from another California thrash band, Exodus. Although, from what I hear, like the other guys at Exodus were like happy for him. It wasn't, there wasn't like bad blood or anything. Okay. That's good. That was kind of a far cry from how Dave Mustaine was leaving. <laughs> Yeah, there's some positivity much, coming in there. Much different situation. Yeah. Uh, so Anthrax's biggest commercial success would come later. Uh, anybody who's a fan, they obviously know this, uh, with a different singer, uh, Joy Belladonna, who would be their singer through a lot of their more commercially popular stuff. Okay. But initially, the band was uh, much different with the original singer named Neil Turbin. So they would release their debut, and only it was the only album featuring Turbin on vocals. It was called Fistful of Metal. And they released it in January 1984. And just a, a note, Anthrax was the only band of this, this big four to feature a dedicated singer on the albums. So like all the other bands, this, the singer either played guitar or played bass. Oh, oh, I see what you mean. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're the only ones that had a singer that didn't play like an instrument. He was just yeah. a vocalist. Uh, so Anthrax was originally formed in 1981 by guitarist Scott Ian and bassist Danny Lilker. Uh, they went through a bunch of members early on, including Scott Ian's brother, who briefly filled in on vocals, uh, mm-hmm. before they would settle on their first recording lineup of Scott Ian, Danny Lilker, uh, Neil Turbin, the vocalist, uh, a guitarist named Danny Spitz, who actually had played for New Jersey thrash band Overkill uh, previously, and uh, drummer Charlie Benante. Okay. So uh, once the band had gotten Johnny Z on board, the, the guy I was talking about earlier, yeah. with, uh, with signing him to his label, they released a single called Soldiers of Metal, it was actually produced by Ross the Boss, the guitarist of Manowar at the time, who we've also oh. talked about. So okay. there's lots of like, more and more of that over. overlap, yeah. Yeah, especially when, especially in the big population bases like the New York and LA, there's like so many mm-hmm. bands came from those scenes, right? So there's a lot, a lot of crossovers. Yeah. If you uh, if you take a look at the album cover, it's got a pretty silly cover, kind of a I don't know, roughly drawn face with like a spiked fist exploding out of its mouth. <laughs> what was it? Fistful of metal. Yeah. Yeah, take a look at the cover. Let me see this. Oh, it's kind of sick. I like that. I got first. At first, I used to, I used to think it was like just a, an awkward punch, but it's actually coming like from the back of his head, like out of his mouth. It looks like. Oh yeah, it's. <laughs> it is. <laughs> He's got like chainmail on his hand. That's really cool. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this album was a great starting point for the band, and it was a solid old school thrash album, but. 
really overall it was fairly generic. There was nothing really um, aside from like the production was actually pretty good, but okay. uh, musically it was like it was really good and very competent, but it wasn't like didn't really stand them out from like the crowd of thrash bands at the time. To, to me, yeah. anyway, I'm just I mean they're obviously making a name for themselves, but for me listening to all these like this was Anthrax's later stuff was much more creative, recognizable. Uh, yeah, like they're still kind of trying to find their 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 sound. I yeah, guess when you're at a time and you're just kind of uh, like in the movement and just doing what everyone else is doing, it can come out. It's very similar. Yeah, and also like uh, Neil Turbin, the singer at the time, he had a, a pretty powerful voice, at least on on the record. But he also had a lot of control in the band at the time and the direction yeah. it was taking, which also has a lot to do with the musical direction at the time. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a couple more things on Anthrax. Before we move on, uh, the band would hit their stride later on Consequent Albums with the singer I mentioned before, Joey Belladonna. He had a much more distinctive singing style and it helped the band stand out through the rest of the 80s. And I think also, you know, Scott Ian probably got more control of the band after Neil Turbin was, was gone. Right. And uh, the other band members had a, more of a say in what musical direction they were taking. Right, right. And obviously they would get to a point where they're playing a song with uh, Public Enemy, right? Like we talked about before, so... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Another fun little fact. A guy named Malcolm Dome, he was a journalist from Kerrang! Magazine. He actually coined the phrase thrash metal in reference to Anthrax and their song Metal Thrashing Mad off that album. Oh, so Anthrax created the term, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, this is, I don't know how accurate this is, but it's just something I read in an article that Mm -hmm. it's kind of a neat fact. Like, you know... Oh, that's cool. Probably there's, there's probably people that could say it might have come from you know a year or two earlier from someone else or whatever. But that I mean, one seems is, pretty concrete, seen as they like wrote it down. Yeah, this is in print, so I guess there's some proof, right? So. Yeah, like the song is literally called that. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we're gonna shift over to the opposite coast now, for a place called Huntington Beach, or sorry, Huntington Park, California. Huntington oh, not Beach, the not where, the beach, uh, it's the park. Yeah, yeah, that's where. Uh, What's his name that UFC fighter's from? <laughs> that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, Tito Ortiz, the Tito Ortiz, Huntington yeah. Beach bad boy. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. I'm pretty um, sure he's yeah, in so. politics now, hey? Yeah, I think he was like a counselor in the <laughs> city or something like that. Or... It's super weird. I I don't know much about him, but I feel like I wouldn't want him to be my counselor. Ah, I reserve judgment. Maybe he's doing a good job. Who knows? <laughs> so Huntington Park, California. Uh, the band Slayer was emerging as arguably the fastest, most brutal of the big four bands. Their, their music had like insanely quick riffage and like ultra-violent anti-Christian lyrics and imagery. And early on, the band's image was all leather, makeup, pentagrams, upside-down crosses, uh, some pretty obvious Venom influence with the theatrics there. Okay. And really, out of all these, the, out of the big four, they were really the only ones that went that direction for the most part. Right. And, and really only early on, uh, their first uh, couple of years kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, obviously, they had some some themes later on like that, but as far as the the, the makeup and the, the leather and all that stuff that kind of faded off pretty quick. Right. Yeah. They, yeah. they kind of evolved, evolved from it. Yeah. But um, they, sorry. Uh, just uh, quickly, because I, I, I checked into it. He wasn't a counselor. He was he was mayor of Huntington Beach City. Oh, wow. Tito Ortiz for six That's months. Impressive. And then he resigned. <laughs> so oh, man. he was full on mayor. <laughs> well, he all must right. have done everything he wanted to do in that six months. I guess so. Well, he said everything up. they started attacking my character, so I walked away. <laughs> oh, or not. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Sure. So uh, Slayer released their debut album, Show No Mercy, in December of 1983. The band's original lineup consisted of guitarist Kerry King and Jeff Hanneman, as well as bassist, vocalist Tom Araya, and drummer Dave Lombardo. Um, 
They were discovered at a show by Metal Blade Records founder Brian Slagle, and he got them to record a track for his compilation album Metal Massacre 3, and subsequently offered them a contract with Metal Blade Records. Oh, sweet. Yeah. And we've talked about Metal Blade before, right? Like yeah, they've come label. up before because, and I'll mention it briefly again, but they were the ones who, uh, the, the Metal Masker 1 was where Metallica was first uh, recorded. Like they had yeah. uh, one of their songs in the first compilation. Okay, cool. So I'll, I'll mention that again later, but I think, I think we talked about that in the uh, one of the early podcasts yeah. there. So the band had no recording budget, so the first album was actually financed by Tom Araya, who was actually a respiratory therapist at the time. Oh. And then uh, guitarist Kerry King's dad, they uh, split the cost of the first album recording. Ah, some nice support in there. That's yeah, a good, that's cool. a solid healthcare job. Yeah. And like Kerry, so, like, I, I don't have this in my notes, but like, Kerry King's dad, when you read about it, he was like a sheriff. He was like a cop. And, but he like fully supported his son playing music. And it's like, oh. it, it was, it's pretty cool. That good good for him. He was yeah. supporting his son, like doing what he would love to do, right? Mm-hmm. So. Uh, the, the cover of the album prominently features uh, the Sword Pentagram Slayer logo. I don't know if you've ever seen it. And there's also a cartoony Baphomet standing off to the side, like the goat guy. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Baph- and, uh, Baphomet? <laughs> it's, no, I actually looked up the pronunciation, dickhead. Is it Baphomet? <laughs> it's, oh, it no. Was originally, it was originally, well, no, it can be both. So when I looked at oh, okay, the pronunciation, okay. they said uh, originally it came out in like France, so it was pronounced Baphomet, but it uh, said okay. in English it's often pronounced Baphomet. So it can be either one. Oh, okay, but oh. it's it's probably like a lazy. We don't feel like pronouncing the French thing. Okay, I came in there a little too confident. Yeah. As a person yeah, who plays sure. Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> I should know better. Uh, the cover was painted by the dad of a Slayer roadie, and apparently the the pose that the Baphomet characters based on, or it was based on a pic of Tom Araya on stage, like the the posture of the oh, cartoon cool. drawing. Yeah. So uh, before I move on to the next band. I like this quote from singer Tom Araya, and uh, it's always kind of a bonus that it's actually an interview from a Canadian newspaper. Uh, but so this is, I quote, Carrie's written some really far out shit, he explained to the Edmonton Sun in 2006. If it's a good song, I'm not one that's going to go, this sucks because it's contrary to my beliefs. To me, it's more like, this is really good stuff. You're going to piss people off with this. People have these heavy issues and ask, isn't this a problem for you? And no, I'm well-rounded. I have a really strong belief system. And these are just words, and they'll never interfere with what I believe and how I feel. People are not in good shape if they have to question their own belief system because of a book or a story somebody wrote or a Slayer song. Ah, like, I love. Yeah. Pretty, I love that quote, man. Like that's, it's it's just like made everything just so plain for me, you know. Like, mm-hmm. like people are always so offended by every little thing. It's like if you really feel strongly about what you believe, like why would something somebody said yeah. or put on paper like question all your beliefs all of a sudden make you question them right yeah like, that's that's something i think was in that um metal headbangers journey that we've talked about before i think um yeah because uh, he's catholic i want to say uh, he was raised catholic yeah yeah he's like still like holds that faith but i remember yeah. uh, in this i think it was in that documentary there's like a clip where they they play like a clip of a Slayer song called God Hates Us. And then yeah, they talk to God hates us all. Like, it's like, it's just a song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, it was kind of, kind of neat. Yeah. So, uh, no, I really respect that guy. After getting kicked out of Metallica. Uh, yeah. So moving on to Megadeth. After getting kicked sure. out of Metallica, Dave Mustaine started writing songs on the bus back to California. Cause he had like four days. So, <laughs> so uh, for his next band, which would end up being Megadeth. Sweet. 
as far as the uh, the name goes, the the name Megadeth actually came from a handbill from a guy named Senator Alan Cranston, and uh, Dave was writing on it, like he was writing lyrics on it, and but he, like he was reading it or whatever. And the phrase "the arsenal of Megadeth can't be read" was one of the phrases in there, and it kind of stuck with mm-hmm. him. So at first it was a potential song title, and then he ended up going with it as the uh, name for his new band. That's a little more. Uh... Not not nuanced, but there's a little more story behind it than what I. It just assumed Megadeth was like this. Is, seems like a crazy metal thing to say. But yeah, I know he read it on like a political handbill. Interesting, because I guess probably nuclear war was like a big thing at the time. I guess in the 80s, right? Yeah. Well, I just looked. I just looked the guy up, and yeah, it seems to be his major. His major point is global abolition of nuclear weapons. Yeah. Uh, although in the handbill, Megadeth was spelt with like a D-E-A-T-H, and they took the A out, obviously. <laughs> it's a poetic license. Uh, before he put together a permanent lineup, Dave actually asked Kerry King from Slayer to be a second guitarist for the first five uh, live shows that Megadeth did. Oh. Uh, although, uh, obviously, Kerry went back to Slayer after. He didn't end up staying. Oh, but he did it. Okay. He actually he, he just He performed the first five shows with Dave because they didn't oh, have sorry. a permanent guitarist yet. Uh, the the lineup for Megadeth's first album was uh, Mustaine on vocals and guitar, David Ellison on bass, uh, a guy named Chris Poland on guitar, on the second guitar, and then Garth Samuelson on the drums. Cool. Uh, so Chris Poland and Garth Samuelson had actually played together before, actually in a jazz fusion band called the New Yorkers. So this jazz background would show through a bit Megadeth's early stuff, making it pretty distinctive from the other three bands. You can mm-hmm. kind of hear the the influence of that. Okay. Uh, so the the album was called Killing Is My Business and Business Is Good, and it was released on Combat Records in June 1985. And according to Brian Slagle, which I read in one of my books, David contacted Metal Blade Records to sign them, but Combat Records actually ended up offering the band $9,000 as opposed to the $8,000 that Metal Blade offered. So they went with uh, Combat Records. I've read yeah. some stories that Combat gave them 8000 so I, I'm not sure... 100% what the truth is, but that's from Brand Slagle, who... Okay, yeah, they, they got outfit anyway. a little bit. Yeah, so... And also, in, in a Metal Hammer story about the making of the album, Mustaine recalls telling the producer that a bunch of them had blown 4000 of the money, uh, $4,000 of the money on cocaine, heroin, and cheeseburgers. <laughs> ah, the big three for the... Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So, needless to say, they uh, didn't have as much money as they needed to to perfect the recording process. <laughs> yeah. I what you're saying that uh, they, their creativity wasn't driven by all that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny cause I, I don't have it written down here as well, but in one of the stories I was reading, they were talking about how some of the songs were like cocaine songs and some of the songs were heroin songs and they sounded different depending on what drug they're on. Interesting. No cheeseburger songs though. Interesting. Well, cheeseburgers could go with either one. That's true. Yeah. You got, you got to eat regardless, right? So. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, the original cover art for Killing Is My Business is notoriously shitty and low budget. The, uh, the story is that Dave had been constantly in contact with the label to let them know what his vision was for the cover. Uh, and he'd actually had a friend do up a drawing for it. But from one of the stories I read, the label lost the drawing and they ended up just winging it. And as Dave put it, he quotes, a pick of a plastic skull with tinfoil and ketchup around it. <laughs> just, it does look. Oh, you, you gotta look, look it up. <laughs> it looks pretty, pretty dumb. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean... When they re-released the album much later, they re-released it with the cover picture that Dave had originally wanted, or, or close to it, I guess. Anyway. Yeah, because uh, like the other pictures, you can see the artwork, and it looks sweet. Uh, yeah. And you know what? They tried their best. 
<laughs> I don't know their best. <laughs> they they tried at all. Like you could see the resemblance at least. That's what I'll I'll give yeah. to them. <laughs> I guess it wasn't like a major label with like endless funds, right? But <laughs> yeah, no, it's not it's not great. It reminds me of those uh, I Spy books that you'd see in like dentist offices back in the two thousands, where it's a picture of a bunch of like little plastic toys. Yeah, but it's it's kind of like a low quality picture. <laughs> And the lighting's bad, and it just looks like that. And the props are terrible. Table. Yeah, <laughs> just bad props. Uh, all right, moving on to the last debut album of the Big Four. It's the yes. album Kill 'Em All by Metallica, which you're Hell familiar yeah. with, for sure. Very much so. So uh, we talked a bit about this album on the episode where Mustaine was kicked out of Metallica, mm. uh, as he did write or co-wrote several of the songs on it. And mm-hmm. the band had the song "Hit the Lights" featured on that Metal Massacre compilation I was talking about. Okay, that's the song that was on there. Okay. Yeah, when they, when they released, I'm not sure how in-depth we got into that on that previous episode, but when they released that song on Metal Massacre, they, so the Metal Massacre 1 came out three different times, like three different pressings. Okay. And the first pressing had um, Dave Mustaine played one of the guitar parts, I think, but the, uh, uh, what was his name, uh, Lloyd, whatever, the, the original guitarist, he played uh, he played guitar in the first version, but the band, I think James didn't like the first version, so... When they re-released Metal Massacre again, they uh, re-recorded it, or they uh, put out a different version, so it was just Dave on the lead guitar. Okay. On the uh, second and third versions. But. Right. So Kill 'Em All was released on July 25th, 1983. Right. Technically, it would have been the first of these four albums to be released. Yeah. It was, uh, so, uh, beaten, beaten them by like a year, or at least one of them. Which one? Well, one they, they beat Slayer by a few months, and then yeah. I think Anthrax was, what, 1984, and then Megadeth was the next year after that. Okay, yeah. I think Anthrax was when I was looking at that set, 84. So, uh, as I mentioned before, Kirk Hammett had left Ex- Exodus to replace Mustaine, and uh, mm-hmm. that was just actually just weeks before they started working to record the album. So he didn't have much time to get prepared, but he did a pretty bang-up job, I think. Yeah. Uh, Cliff Burton had already replaced Ron McGovney on bass before that. Oh, he wasn't the original bassist. Huh? No, Ron McGovney was the bassist back when they did those uh, Metal Massacre songs. Oh, okay, that uh, might well, have been something we was, talked about before too. But he was supposed forgot. to be actually, but reading a little more in depth about it, it looks like on uh, one of the versions, James just did the bass himself, <laughs> like took <laughs> Ron McGovney's bass out of it. But uh, <laughs> I believe he did play the bass on like one of the versions, or maybe one or two of them. Okay, so that's but, that doesn't spell anything good when you're yeah. starting out but, in a band. Yeah, I think I think the the writing was on the wall. <laughs> I think yeah. he, if if you read Ron McGovney's interviews and stuff, like he he knew it too at the time, mm-hmm. uh, and it didn't really seem like he was really into the heavy heavy stuff anyway. Like that wasn't really his thing, right? Uh, but they uh, yeah they'd replaced so Kirk and Cliff were in the band before they recorded Kill 'Em All, right? Um, and apparently the house that they recorded the album in was actually haunted, I guess, or allegedly oh, haunted. Or- that's what they. That's what they say about it. Yeah. So Lars. Lars claimed that stuff like his symbols were spinning for no reason would happen. Oh, so it was Lars have, that said it. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, so we had to have a person in the room with him all the time when he was like when he was recording because there's oh, like, weird stuff going on. Sure, Lars. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it makes for a good story, right? Yeah. Uh, Metallica had originally wanted to call the album "Metal Up Your Ass." Did you know that? I did. I did know that. <laughs> yeah. That was something I didn't know, especially because uh, um, they have artwork for it too <laughs> and i remember yeah, well, the artwork they had the artwork like they, they knew what they wanted for the artwork so it was a cover that depicted a toilet with a hand holding a sword coming out of the toilet <laughs> and, and actually one of the ways that Lars described it back then was like they wanted a hand coming out of the toilet with like a bloody machete <laughs> but 
They ended up putting it on a t-shirt later on, but it just says uh, just like a hand with a sword coming out of a toilet. Like metal oh, okay. Machete would have yeah. been good too. That would have been cooler. I mean, either way, I think you get the point across. It's still, it's still fun. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think they do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so when they wanted this, the band wanted this to be the, you know, the title and the cover, or whatever. But their manager at the time said the uh, record stores wouldn't carry it. And the, uh, the quote from Cliff Burton, according to Kirk Hammett, was, you know what? Fuck those fuckers, man. Those fucking record outlet people. We should just kill them all. <laughs> and, uh, and the rest is history. Right? Ah, that worked out. I mean, that's a pretty, that, that story is pretty well known, so I'm not really telling. Any metalhead will probably have heard that before, but kind of neat. Uh, I didn't, I mean, it might be something I read before, but uh, I didn't know that that's actually where they came up with it. I knew uh, that it was a, originally supposed to be metal up your ass, but I didn't You're, you're a pseudo metalhead, Don. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, and the the pretty much iconic cover art that ended up being on the album for Kill 'Em All it features a hammer laying in a pool of blood with the shadow of a hand over it. So they're hinting at extreme violence without being like totally obvious about it. Super super explicit. It's a sweet album yeah. cover. I love that. I love that. It art. is really cool. And it's actually like a very professional looking cover for a first album from a bunch of teenagers. Right? Like yeah, no, it looks fantastic. Because yeah, they would have been like neat. nineteen or something. Yeah, like out of the four albums, it's like definitely the most professional looking one. Sure. Yeah, they're they're really they're really young there, so it's. Yeah. And uh, before we get to the workout playlist here, uh, mm-hmm. another quick fun fact. So apparently, Megaforce Records was originally started up by Johnny Z and his wife as a vehicle to release Kill 'Em All, as Metal Blade couldn't afford to finance it at the time. Oh, that's how much they believed in it. Yeah, like Megaforce Records was formed to to put out Kill 'Em All, and I mean, obviously it paid off huge, right? Like, oh yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Kill 'em All got everything started. It got the ball rolling for those other bands too, right? So yeah, that's interesting. Kind of like a butterfly effect kind of thing. Um, yeah. Well, if that's if that's your last thing before we uh, before we move on, I was going through Megaforce Records uh, just to see who who's also on their label. Uh, I didn't know that. Um, oh, where were they? Bjork is on Megaforce. Oh, and for real? Meat, yeah, Bjork and the, this one makes more sense, but the Meat Puppets too. Where, oh, the Meat Puppets are like pretty heavy alternative. Like they're, they're yeah, they're more sense yeah. Um, but Bjork, yeah, that's that. very interesting. Um, and also a band called Sweaty Nipples that I'd never heard of, and uh, ah. not sure if I'm going to check them out. But <laughs> interesting name. Well, you have to now. I gotta listen to one <laughs> Sweaty Nipples song. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, yeah, let's get to the workout playlist. Let's do the playlist. I ain't got time to bleed. Days of the Jumpers. Let's put a smile on that face. Alright, I figure because we did four albums, we could break it up to two songs per album. Yeah, sounds so, good. Uh, we'll just kind of go in the same order. So we'll start out with uh, the first song is going to be Anthrax. The song is Metal Thrashing Mad that we actually mentioned earlier. Oh yeah. Uh, so I have to kind of start with a song that allegedly begot the name for the entire genre, I guess. <laughs> so uh like the rest of their first album it's very competent thrash fast heavy riffs pretty cheesy lyrics but you know that's to be expected at the time as uh, the first album too. pretty w- wicked solo uh neil turbin's vocals are actually really powerful but according to scott ian he would actually wear out his voice in the first song live which is one of the reasons that he ended up getting booted from the band oh he just couldn't couldn't handle it okay yeah like he burned himself out in the first song and yeah but uh, and the album at least is uh, he's actually got a, a pretty sweet voice. So okay, check it out. Metal thrashing mad Anthrax. Ah! 
I can see why he would throw out his voice with that. <laughs> There's a lot yeah. of high intensity screams. He goes from like zero to 11, like a lot, like right away. <laughs> yeah. Well, he opens it up with like a yeah. 10 second scream. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's I, I'm a, I like it. It's very raw, but it's also uh, very clear. Who, who's the drummer anthrax? Uh, Charlie Benante. He kills it. When it comes to drummers, like we were talking about earlier about how like Lars Ulrich is technically not that great of a <laughs> yeah, drummer. Not amazing, so no. when, when you think of all three of these bands, so, or all, sorry, all four of these bands, so like uh, Anthrax, Slayer, uh, Megadeth, Metallica. So like three of those four drummers are all like very well known as being like really, really good drummers, except for Lars. He's, like, Lars, he's the so, only like, one. Dave Lombardo from Slayer is like really, really high up on like top metal drummers of all time. Uh, mm-hmm. Garth Samuelson, you know, he's, he's passed away. He, you know, died of an overdose back in like, I think the eighties, but he was also like a technically proficient drummer. Like he was like a jazz drummer. He was very like, Oh, sweet. Yeah. yeah he had a, he had a good style. That's and then the Charlie Benante is very well known as a good drummer as well. Yeah. It's like the only one you don't hear talked about is like being Lars a great drummer is Lars. I mean, I can't drum. So he's way yeah, better than true. me, obviously. But like, I mean, we're, it's all relative, right? Like comparing him to like Dave Lombardo, obviously Dave Lombardo is a better drummer, but like, yeah, he, he can still, he can still hold his own. I mean, I've seen him live. He could, you know, he, he can, yeah, it it's works for him. Like he he's yeah. he fits in great, but uh, we'll we'll get there. So uh, song two, another Anthrax song. It's called it's like, "Soldiers of Metal." A bit of a theme oh. here with uh, the metal. <laughs> yeah, this is the only single they released off "Fistful of Metal." <laughs> so okay. metal thrashing mad, <laughs> "Fistful of Metal," "Soldiers of Metal." Yeah, it's an underlying theme for sure, or overlying theme, I guess. <laughs> it's got a like a galloping riff right off the start. Turbin's got some pretty impressive range on this one. At least on the studio tracks, I obviously live <laughs> yeah. sounds like the Kimball is shortened sometimes. But uh, <laughs> the production on this album is actually probably the best out of the four albums. Okay, like just as far as production value goes, which is yeah. uh, maybe one of the reasons that it got them noticed. Mm-hmm. But uh, Dan Spitz also rips up uh, another killer solo on this. He's a pretty sweet guitarist. So awesome! All right, uh, Soldiers of Metal, Anthrax. I'm still blown away by, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot his name already, the drummer. What was oh, this? Charlie Benante. Charlie Benante. Uh, yeah. Man, he's incredible. He's got the double kickers going and everything. Um, yeah, he's a good drummer. Neil, Neil Turbin, was that his name? Yeah, the singer. There's a lot of names being thrown out there. Even in the studio track, that guy is not hitting some of those notes. <laughs> he's, he is not. Yeah, he's, you can tell he's pushing it really hard. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's that's the thing. Like, It sounds very strained. I. He must have like a naturally good voice, but technically doesn't know how to like sing to a degree. Cause there's, there's a lot of technicalities. Cause my, uh, my friend's girlfriend is a opera singer yeah. and she's like explained to me some of the concepts uh, of singing for this, this like project they did. And, um, there's a lot that goes into the way you position the sound in your body and your yeah. mouth and stuff to help you not throw out your voice basically uh yeah. i'm assuming he might not be doing all of that no at least not back then for sure uh, yeah yeah if you ever listen to i mean obviously we'll get more into anthrax at another time but but like joy belladonna the singer after 
uh, he, he was like technically a better singer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah pretty, pretty good voice. Like, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, I've seen him live, and it uh, definitely showed live. Like he, he was, up, yeah, he was really good. Like, totally. Yeah. But like musically, it's it's awesome. I love the way that song starts out, and the drums keep me. Yeah. Here. Well, this whole album is super heavy. It's, mm-hmm. it's it's a really good thrash album. It's just like Anthrax changed their sound and became much more distinctive after this. Right. It was but, like a I mean, stepping stone. For this time period, this this album, I guess, still would have stood out uh, as a thrash album in 1984. Right. So, all right, we'll move on to Slayer. So song three. Uh, I'm going to start out with the first song off the album called Evil Has No Boundaries. So, uh, like I said, it's the opening track off Show No Mercy. It kicks off with some lightning fast riffs and it breaks right into Tom Araya just screaming and it's like frantic solo. Right, right, like right away. Okay. And, uh, the first uh, lyrics are blasting our way through the boundaries of hell. No one can stop us tonight. And it's like, <laughs> this is what I wrote because I'm actually I'm I'm much better at writing things than I am at like coming up with them off the top of my head. <laughs> but uh, it's very fitting because it's like a satanic thrash sledgehammer smashing you right in the face. <laughs> that's, so what poetic. <laughs> that's what I, that's what I wrote. So I, I can never think of that off the top of my head. <laughs> Amazing wordplay there. <laughs> All right. Uh, Evil has no boundaries. Slayer. There's something so uh, endearing about, like, if it's done the, the right way, like a, a rougher cut early album where you can hear some of the imperfections. Because right at the start of that song, there's a part where the guitar kind of cuts out and you can hear it almost yeah. like feedback in the background, but it fits well. Yeah. And the song is great and everyone's playing well. So it, it, it almost like thematically makes it better. Yeah, really it's almost like. like- it's almost like it's meant to sound a little bit rough. It's like it adds to the character yeah. of, the, of the music. It's oh, uh, absolutely, it's great. Like the the drums have a little more reverb than they're supposed to have, and it's uh, everything still works together really well. I'm a big fan yeah. of that one. And their music, you know, uh, evolves over time, and this is definitely not their best album, but it's just so like raw, and the energy is just so apparent. It's just, I really like. Yeah, it. it's it's already it's already great. Like they already have that not really like their formula down but the the music is really good now my yeah, words aren't it, working maybe i should write and, things down and the slayer is always like obviously their imagery is much like darker and, and and more like all the satanic stuff and all that but like they you know musically they're they're, they're technically very proficient like all their guys can play the shit out of their instruments their oh, songwriting yeah. is very good like they vocals match they're, it perfectly they're they're just very professional yeah you know and i, I kind of like how they they took it a little bit darker than the other bands too, and they, they kind of stood out from the, at least from this group of four, right? Like, yeah, the, the themes they went with. Uh, so, all right, song four is uh, another Slayer song. It's called "Metal Storm Face the Slayer." So, of course, I picked two songs that the band never plays live anymore, but they're two of my favorites from this album. So, I, I picked "Metal Storm" for its epic dueling guitar opening, and it uh, builds up into a fast-paced basically cautionary tale for Slayer's unsuspecting victims, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) The song's got a few different parts and they all got some great evil sounding guitar riffs, which is really cool. So yeah, I would say if you're listening to it, try to get far enough in that you get to like where you're singing. So get through the, the opening guitar part and uh, into the, into the verse. Okay. All right. Metal storm face the Slayer. 
by Slayer. The guitar in that is is phenomenal. It like goes right back to what I was saying about evil has no boundaries. Is the um, like the imperfection of it. Like they're they're playing that harmony, and it's it's like a tiny fraction off from each yeah. other, but it works. Like it's it makes it better almost. Eh? Like yeah, no, I love it. Like it because it, I don't know what there's something about that imperfection that that makes it hit better. Uh, all right, number five on to Megadeth. Sweet. So uh, we're gonna start out with the title track off "Killing Is My Business." And business is good. So I thought I'd start off with that, that track because it shows a bit of an unconventional opening for a thrash song. And that could possibly be due to the uh, jazz musicians masquerading as metalheads in the band. Right. Uh, but it doesn't take too long to break into a really fast speed kind of thrash metal riff with Mustaine's trademark snarling, uh, basically about being a contract killer, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> His fantasy about being a contract killer. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> Killing is my business. Business is good. Megadeth. This is, uh, it just like sounds like Megadeth, and I because uh, this is their first album. But yeah. you could have told me this was their fifth album, and I would have at least based just on this song alone. I guess he had the benefit of already having a full album under his belt with uh, Kill 'Em All. But yeah, the thing with this album is like the songwriting is pretty good, but the recording is not that great. Which yeah, is true. because they spent half the budget on drugs and yeah, cheeseburgers. And fair, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, uh, but like all things considered, not terrible production. Like not. It's not awful. And it was definitely very listenable. It's, it's enjoyable. But uh, the, the songwriting is actually uh, fairly advanced, to be mm-hmm. honest. Oh, no, it's, um, it's fantastic. Like the the guitar work right off the start, it's just Dave Mustaine going nuts on it. And, uh, and Chris Poland was a great guitarist, too. He's actually released some stuff, like some instrumental guitar stuff on his own. He's he's oh, a shredder. He can, he can play. Awesome. Uh, all right, we're going to do another Megadeth song. It's called Looking Down the Cross. It's... Uh, I guess it's one of the coolest songs on this album. It kind of builds up slow at first and it works up to some higher speeds and some really great guitar work. Uh, lyrically, it's def- definitely about, there's got some religious imagery yeah. and <laughs> obviously looking down the cross, right? Although yeah. uh, Dave admitted that Megadeth wasn't trying to be overly satanic in their themes or anything, mm-hmm. but it's a cool song. Yeah, I mean, you think of Megadeth, you don't really think of that kind of thing. They're just kind of death, kill, whatever, fast guitar. Like they're not... Yeah, I mean, as far as like overly satanic stuff, Slayer was really the only one that was really pushing that at the time. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, looking down the cross, Megadeth.
I really like the song. I, I don't know if I like the build up to it. Well, it's the thing is though it builds up to something, right? Like you have to listen yeah. to the whole song. Oh yeah, no, like the the song is fantastic, but his oh, solo sounds a little forced. <laughs> like at the start, he's got this like slow bass. Yeah, you got to get up like once you get into the song, like once you get it, you know, a minute, minute and a half in, it really starts to build up, and it actually be it's a really good song. But it, yeah, oh yeah, no, it's 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 awesome once he gets in there. Um, there was one during the build up. Dave Mustaine goes whoa, and I, I laughed <laughs> a little bit at that. <laughs> I was I didn't expect him to come in with that. <laughs> I guess I'm just so used to it because I've listened to this album so many times. Yeah, I've never heard it before. I still really like the song. Just <laughs> that that part. Whoa. Right. Well, when you say it like that, it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> Out of context. Come on, man. I used to like that part. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we'll move on to the last couple songs. Yes. Uh, so my my uh, selection is a little bit limited because we've used a bunch of songs from this album previously. And I <laughs> yeah. don't want to re- repeat. So um, we're, we're going to go with a couple songs that Dave Mustaine didn't write. Okay. From, uh, from Kill em All. So we're going to go start with Metallica. Uh, the first song off the album, Hit the Lights. Sweet, the one that so was the song, on the compilation. Yeah, the the original version was on the compilation with uh, with Mustaine, and then the, mm-hmm. uh, obviously the the version off the album has Kirk Hammett doing his best Dave Mustaine impression, but adding his own flavor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know, in my eyes, like this this song has so much youthful energy that you just can't help but love it. Like killer riffs, uh, James Hetfield's voice is super raw, and he's just screaming through the entire song. Oh, very yeah. high energy and Kirk just kills it with the solos. So it's, it just gets you right into it immediately. And mm-hmm. it's a fun song. All right. Uh, hit the lights, Metallica. Now that I know that they they had all this punk influence in there, I really hear it in that song. Yeah, like you can hear the way the the way the chorus goes. It sort of like shifts to major quickly, yeah. like a major key, uh, and it sounds really punky. And then there's a guitar the tempo solo. of it, right? Yeah, and the the tempo and everything. And yeah. I mean, I just love that song. This is the one album that I uh, I'm I'm well versed in all most things Metallica, uh, and Kill 'Em All is a all time favorite of this album. Yeah, I figured you'd be a little more familiar with this one. Yeah, well, hit hit the lights is. I don't know if I mentioned this before. When I was taking guitar lessons, my uh, my guitar teacher was like Metallica was by far his favorite band. So I yeah. I basically learned almost every song they wrote in the eighties <laughs> through my guitar yeah. lessons. So it's all he would teach. It's a lot of good stuff. Oh yeah. So now I have to pick another song off Kill 'Em All that Dave must need <laughs> yeah. right? Okay. So I was kind of on the fence between two of them, and so I end up going with Whiplash. Okay because it's a little bit faster. I mean, I, I was really close to picking Phantom Lord, to be honest, because Phantom Lord is a pretty cool song. Uh, okay. But yeah, we'll, we'll go with Whiplash. Uh, it's, it's an iconic thrash tune. It builds up a bit at the start with the drums and then cuts into that memorable riff. Uh, yeah. another, another another fast, high-energy track. It, it must have just been insane to see these guys smash this out live back when the mosh pit was just getting crazy. Mm-hmm. So You didn't, didn't want to pick uh, Anast- Anastasia? 
No, I mean, that's a pretty cool bass solo, but yeah, not for the workout <laughs> playlist. Yeah. All right, all right, fine. All right, Whiplash, Metallica. I must have listened to this song a lot when I was really getting into Metallica because like I could faintly remember it when you were talking about it. And then as soon as I, I heard it, like everything came rushing back. I must have, <laughs> I don't know, loved this song before. I felt very nostalgic, but I mean, that song's awesome the way it, it drives I find myself, fast like, and everything. I find myself really focusing on the drums now, though. <laughs> yeah, like you listen, you listen to, 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 to Lars. Like, listen to, like, any other song by the other three bands and then listen to the Metallica songs. It's, like, the one thing that stands out is, like, the drums are just not doing nearly as much. Oh, it's just, ones. it's that one beat. It's that, and that's all yeah, yeah, it's crazy, man. I mean, it, obviously it works, but, like, it's just, uh, yeah. I mean, if you don't focus on it, you don't really, you don't think about it, but. Yeah. I, I happen to focus on it. I'm just like, wow, you just, just going bass, snare, bass. Like, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Once in a while, a small yeah. fill. Uh, but. I guess when you have James Hetfield's really, really specific style to to drive the song, like, yeah, I can just follow it. Yeah. Guy does nothing but but downpick for uh, anyone who who plays guitar out there. James Hetfield is absolute maniac. I don't know how his arms do what they do. Like you, most people have to alternate picking, and it's he plays at a ridiculous speed, never alternating, which it's very hard to do. Uh, what he does, yeah. and then like obviously Kirk Hammett and Cliff Burton were nuts. Uh, not being a musician, I'm just going to take your word for it. But. It's <laughs> it, it hurts your arms a lot if you try to do what he does. Like, okay. anytime I've tried to play a Metallica song the way he does, my arm cramps, basically. Oh, yeah. Cool. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's the end of the workout playlist. I guess that's that's eight. Uh, I was going to mention this before. Um, if I remember right, I think it was in the 90s when he switched over, but Lar- Lars Ulrich made his um, kit smaller. He removed i don't know some some drums i don't know much about drums but i know he changed his kit to a smaller one um because he wanted to play technically better or something like that so he's like Did you go like the white stripe style or where <laughs> you just play two drums the whole time yeah. <laughs> i don't know exactly what what he changed but i i doubt it's changed a lot he's <laughs> uh definitely not was it neil peart that had like 50 different pieces to his drum set. Like, oh, yeah. Like he's basically just in an enclosed circle. But <laughs> he could actually thing. play them all. Like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I remember someone saying his huge drum solos, he would uh, write them beforehand. So he knew yeah. what he was playing. And they thought that was some sort of knock against him. Like, are you listening to what he's playing? Just the fact that he can write that is ridiculous. Yeah. Like, it, <laughs> it, doesn't make it, less, it doesn't make it less complicated because he wrote it beforehand. <laughs> It's exactly it's the same. <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's more impressive that he's remembering yeah. it all. <laughs> it's... Or that he can replicate it, right? Exactly, yeah. Like it's if you crazy. write it, you can do it more than once, and you can do it like almost the same, which is ins- that's, that's crazy. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's still insane. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I Do you have any news for any of this? I guess uh, Metallica is constantly touring, so they're going to pop up somewhere. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any. I didn't, I didn't look up any news today. I was concentrating on the... Task at hand. 
No, nah, it's okay. These guys are still, I think all of them. Is Anthrax still active? Uh, yeah, like all of uh, Slayer called it quits a couple years ago. Okay, okay. So but uh, everyone else is still active, as far as I know. Yeah, Metallica definitely, Megadeth, I'm, I'm sure is popping around. Well, they're literally, they're touring right now, actually. When I was in Vegas a few weeks ago, they were actually playing there on the Saturday. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. uh, I just wasn't able to get, we weren't able to get time to, to go, like, on short notice. But yeah, that yeah, was, uh, they were playing with, uh, like, Lamb of God and, uh, uh, Lamb of God and Trivium. And oh, nice. It was like, a really good lineup, anyway. But that was a really sweet lineup. Yeah. 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 So Megadeth out there, too. Um, all right, cool. Then uh, that is going to do it for this episode of The Heavy. See the show notes? We got a complete list of songs you heard in this episode uh, and a link to the Spotify playlist that we're going to put all of those songs on. That workout playlist is going to be on Spotify for you. And uh, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app if you like the show. Tell a friend and leave us a rating on iTunes. Our website is www.theheavy.ca. And you can email us at heavypod at gmail.com if you got anything to say. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Heavy Pod on all of those. Our show is edited by Ian Sutherland. Andrew doing all of the research. Our brother Rob designed our logo. And our theme song is Stallions of the Highway by Savage Blade. I'm your host, Don Sutherland. And thanks for listening. Uh, This is the final episode of season two. So we will be back in September. And we'll catch you then. Later. Later.